Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 83, The Spiritual Journey of a Maverick Philosopher. Dr. William Valicella is the author of the book, A Paradigm Theory of Existence, Ontotheology Vindicated. He's also published numerous articles and book chapters in metaphysics and philosophy of religion. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Boston College and is taught at the University of Dayton and at Case Western Reserve University. But in 1991, he retired from academia but not from philosophy. Since 2004, he has written one of the best philosophy blogs called Maverick Philosopher. He lives in the foothills of the Superstition Mountains in Arizona, where I have the privilege of talking with him today at his home. Dr. Valicella, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Dale, for the invitation to contribute to one of your famous podcasts. But go ahead and call me Bill. Okay, thanks, Bill. For the uninitiated, why did you pick the name Maverick Philosopher for your blog? Well, that's a very good question. One reason is that I decided to become academically unaffiliated. And so, uh, given the meaning of the word maverick, it seemed to fit. I also wanted to indicate that I'm neither a continental nor an analytic philosopher in narrow senses of those terms. Although I started out with more on the continental side, I, I soon felt the need to interact with the analytic tradition. So uh, I started with Kant, and then I went through the German idealists and the neo-Kantians, and did a lot of work on Husserl, and then Husserl led me to Heidegger, and then Heidegger uh, got me interested in the question of being. That brought me back to Aquinas and, and the medievals, but also in trying to think about being, as Heidegger was using the term, I realized that if uh, people like Frege and Russell were right about being in existence, then that Heidegger was mistaken. So that forced me to see how uh, being was, uh, or existence was, analyzed within the, uh, the Fregean tradition of uh, Frege, Russell, Quine, and, and their followers, which is really the dominant theory of existence in the 20th century. Besides that, I, I realized uh, that many of the, the themes that the, the phenomenologists were talking about were uh, led on to questions about the mind-body relation, which they were not very clear about, and so that got me into philosophy of mind and the analytic tradition. And so I, I was, uh, you might say, uh, amphibious as between these two traditions, swimming back and forth, which endears you to neither side. So. I uh, thought that Maverick would be a good way to indicate that refusal to be either narrowly continental or narrowly analytic. A third reason was, would be that I wanted to, to indicate a certain intellectual independence, as my motto on the blog suggests, study everything, join nothing. So uh, that seemed to fit with the Maverick moniker as well. And finally... I see philosophy as a spiritual quest, primarily, as part of a spiritual quest. I don't see it as an academic game or as a way to fill your belly or anything like that. So I, and, and I certainly don't see it as something merely theoretical. I see it as something existential, but also theoretical. So neither merely theoretical nor merely existential. That suggests another kind of division that I wanted to avoid. And so the, the maverick 
seem to fit with that. And then finally, there's an element of shtick involved, of course. Let me say one thing that I think is important. I want to stress that if people think for themselves, that's no guarantee of arriving at the truth. When people think for themselves, they are just as likely to end up going down rat holes of their own choice. So I don't want to uh, suggest that that is uh, the royal road to truth. On the other hand, if you align yourself with some institution, that institution can go off the rails. This is something that I would like to make clear that I don't think that anybody who thinks for himself is somehow superior to somebody who decides to adhere to a long-standing tradition. That's just another question that I have to I have to work out for myself. So you mentioned some of your work in metaphysics regarding existence, and of course you're also well known for some of your work in philosophy of religion. For instance, many people that have read the Trinity's blog would have read your entry on divine simplicity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But um, like you just mentioned, you don't see uh, any strong distinction between your life as philosopher and your life as person on a spiritual quest. So. Can we start at the beginning, you know, where, how did your spiritual quest begin? Were you raised in a religious home? Uh, yes, I was. I, I was raised Roman Catholic, and this was pre-Vatican II. So uh, in 1956, I started at the local Catholic school, and my mother made sure that I went to, these, to the Catholic school. That uh, undoubtedly got me thinking metaphysically, since Roman Catholicism is a deeply metaphysical religion. And so I was kind of vaguely aware of people like Thomas Aquinas, even though it, you know, it's, it's six years old, I didn't read any of it. But it was in the background. But I have a religious sensibility to start with, because other people that went through eight or 12 or 16 years of, of Catholic education, it didn't leave any trace on them at all. But since I had this religious predisposition, it resonated with me. So, I mean, that formed me in a certain way, but then the 60s uh, came around, and uh, that was a time of incredible ferment, and so that led to a certain cognitive dissonance. So I had to try to reconcile the, the values of the church with the values of secular society, and, and I had to ask myself the question whether any of this stuff that I was brought up to believe is true. So then that brings you to philosophy. As the, as the way to try to resolve those questions. So when you were young, you did believe all the things that were taught in Catholic school and Catholic church, and is that right? But then that came into some question when you got into the 60s and you got, what, up to college age mainly. How did, how did that environment affect you? You said it caused you to question. Did you say that you weren't Catholic for a while? Did you, did you try out various things? I mean, what was your reaction to that other than just questioning? At a certain point, I don't know when it was, maybe in when I was a senior in high school, well, I just stopped going to church. I stopped participating in, in, the, in the faith, basically. So philosophy took over from religion. So philosophy became my, my religion in a certain way. You actually discovered philosophy, what, when you were freshman in college? or I was interested in uh, engineering first. 
I was interested in science and engineering as a as a boy. So I thought, well, you know, in, a, in you know, Sputnik was what 1957, and then the space race started up, and in the early 60s, uh, 61, 62, you had the first uh, suborbital flight by Alan Shepard, and then you know Yuri Gagarin and all of this stuff. So I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer or an electrical engineer. I used to play around with electronics as a kid. And so my original career goal was to be an electrical engineer or an aerospace engineer. But I ended up going to a, a Jesuit school, Loyola of Los Angeles. And even though by, by that time, the old uh, Jesuit uh, tradition of uh, everybody having essentially a minor in philosophy and a minor in theology was long gone. So it had been stripped down and the old scholastic manuals were thrown out. Still were core requirements for philosophy and religious studies. And those are the courses that everybody else hated to take, but they just, they said, wow, this, this was what really what got my interest. So in those days, you, you didn't take those as freshmen, you took them as, as a sophomore, because it was thought that as a freshman, you were too young for philosophy. But, so I took my first philosophy course when I was a sophomore, and then that captured my interest. And I did a double major with electrical engineering and philosophy for a while. But uh, the double E curriculum is extremely packed with... Uh, with calculus and physics and chemistry, and there's no space for anything else, I found that I, I really couldn't pull off a double major. So I, I decided, uh, and this was very painful, extremely painful, because I'm coming from a working-class background, and philosophy is thought of with contempt by people from that kind of background. This was another kind of cognitive dissonance that I had to deal with. Finally, I changed my major and uh, decided to uh, become a philosopher. And so when you say we're a grad student in philosophy, was that the late 70s, early 80s? What, what, were you, what was your religious condition then? What would you have called yourself in graduate school? I finished in three years at Loyola. So, and then I kicked around and traveled for about a year. And so I didn't start grad school until fall of 73 in Boston. Well, in those days, I, I thought, well... Maybe there is no God, but there, there are... I was a big student of Husserl, so I, I believed in ideal objects. We didn't call them abstract objects, but ideal objects. So I thought, so the whole kind of platonic, quasi-platonic menagerie of ideal essences and such was a, kind of a substitute for, for God for a while. So I, I, well, I basically stopped going to church, and that was all suspended you know, when you start thinking philosophically, you see, the thing is that most people don't, most Catholics don't know their own doctrine. But if, you're, if you have an intellectual bent, then you want to understand these doctrines. So there's, uh, what's the essence of Christianity? I mean, it's, first of all, the doctrine of the Incarnation, which connects with the doctrine of the Trinity. As Professor Tuggy well knows, these uh, doctrines involve certain logical conundra. So... For a long time, I couldn't see how any of this could be actually logically possible. And I, I was always had a revulsion against a certain sorts of fideism, whether it be Kierkegaardian or Wittgensteinian. So I suspended belief in, in that. As a philosopher, you weren't going to just believe. You weren't just going to squint your eyes and then say that you believe it. And, and you couldn't make sense of it yourself. So then you, you were a philosopher, but not, not really Catholic at that point. I make a distinction between being a, like a sociological X and a doctrinal X. So if you're brought up Catholic, then you're, you remain a Catholic in a certain sense, sociologically. 
without, and you can you remain having that formation without accepting the doctrines. Well, I stopped participating in the religion, you could say that. But in your life as a philosopher, you continue to be interested in a lot of these questions off and on, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the God question is a central question. I was interested in all the central problems of metaphysics, primarily. Now, I mentioned in my introduction that you have been a professor of philosophy, that you, you got a PhD, you got a permanent job, and then at a certain point you walked away from that. I mean, why did that happen? That's, that's a, a bit unusual. Okay, so I, I was one of those lucky people. By the, uh, the 60s were the gravy days of, of academe, and then by the early 70s everything started to become difficult. But I was one of those people that got a tenure-track job right out of, the, right out of grad school, and I got tenure, and then I got, I was offered a, a visiting associate professorship at Case Western Reserve, and then I could have uh, gone back to University of Dayton, but then at that point I was about 41, and I, and it was time for a change. I, uh, I wasn't too pleased with, with the academic world. As I said, I see philosophy as a spiritual quest, and most of the people in philosophy see it as a, as a way to fill their belly. Now, that's maybe a bit harsh, but I think it's basically true. So the real life is elsewhere. It's not in philosophy, it's elsewhere. So philosophy is the way they make a living. And I was disappointed in general with the academic world and the quality of students and the political correctness of the universities. And also I was uh, disappointed with the level of people I was interacting with. This was before the Internet. So since the Internet, everything changes, and you can find people everywhere. So... I can find people like, like, like you and, and all the other wonderful people I've met by running a blog. Whereas if you're, if you're stuck in a department and you're stuck with people that you have really nothing to, to communicate about, there was a, a guy who was, he was interested in the, the continental tradition, but he was so sloppy in his thinking that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make any headway with him. And then you had the analytic types and you couldn't talk with them. So you had the continental mushheads on the one hand and you had the analytic bigots on the other. And then you had the old Thomists who were still stuck in their manuals, who had never, you know, people that had never studied any modern logic. And then you have the time servers, and then you got the people that want to uh, turn philosophy into uh, social work or, or, you know, things like that. So I, I felt alienated from them. So I had no reason to go back there. Plus, my wife was offered a great job in, uh, in Arizona. So I said to my wife, well, you go out there and, and try that job for a year, and uh, I'll visit you. And then when I went out there, I said, this is fabulous. I'm from the West. I'm from, I'm from California. And as Jim Morrison of the Doors once said, the West is the best. I would give that a twofold meaning, the West in the sense of the West of the United States, but also the West in the, in the broader sense. You know, Arizona is a fabulously beautiful state. I'm a bit of an outdoorsman. And, uh, you know, the east is, there's no proper mountains, there's no deserts, there's, it's a boring, flat, humid place. And I'd had enough of teaching. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual type. As you know, I'm a serious guy. And to have to put up with the average run of students is just a chore. Plus, since I don't have any kids, I, I said, I don't have any really, if I had kids, I wouldn't have quit my job. But if... But uh, since I don't have any kids, I said, let's go for it. Let's, let's, you know, live the best life you can possibly live. And write philosophy all day, meditate, pray, 
and hike and, you know, live the life of an independent philosopher. You mentioned meditation, and I know from talking with you that for much of your life, it seems, you have practiced some kind of meditation. Why do you do that, and have you ever been a Buddhist in any sense, or how, how did that practice begin for you? Well, you know, I'm a 60s guy, so, uh, you know, well, I kind of came late to the beat generation. I mean, that was like a 10 years before my time, but, I, you know, I read Kerouac's On the Road in 1968 when I was a freshman. And I read it about 10 times. I had it next to my bed. I read it over and over and over again. And, of course, then you, then you go from there to the Dharma bums, which is also very accessible. So the Dharma bums, you know what that's about. Jaffe Ryder is the character that stands in for Gary Snyder, and so that got me into the Buddhism of, of the Beats, which is kind of pseudo-Buddhism. It's, and uh, in high school, I'd read Alan Watts, another kind of sophist, but he, he, but he got me going into uh, Eastern religions. All of this stuff's in the air, right? So uh, I, w- I was at the, you know, I went to the Monterey Pop Festival. That was before Woodstock. That was the first big rock concert. And, you know, all of this stuff. I, was, I played in rock bands, and I took all the drugs. And, and, uh, and I got into, uh, into this, in, into meditation, and then I started studying it. And then gradually I, uh, I started to realize that if you're, if you're really interested in truth, you should pursue it from every angle. I mean... The philosopher pursues truth from the, from, the, from the point of view of reason, unaided by revelation. So he stays on a discursive plane. But the trouble with philosophy is it leads, you, you go from one thought to another thought to another thought to another thought, but you never get to the thinker of those thoughts. You never regress to the ultimate ground of, of thought itself. So you're going around and around, you're constructing arguments. I got, and then I finally started to get good at that. Later in the 70s in grad school, I started studying logic and I got studying analytic philosophy. You learn how to be good at constructing arguments and, and you realize the futility of that, that this is not getting us anywhere. So then I, I became more intensely interested in, in meditation, both in the Buddhist way, in the Hindu way. I was attracted to Advaita Vedanta for a while. And I was interested in Zen Buddhism and also uh, the different kinds of Buddhism, Mahayana and Hinayana, and then also the Christian mystics. I read the, uh, all the mystical literature I could find, Juan de la Cruz and all, all those guys. And uh, then I realized, you know, uh, Eckhart and Suzo and Towler and all of these were... And of course, I played around with the idea that, uh, that of the transcendent unity of all religions. You know, Frito Shuan, have you read him? He's a little flaky, but uh, and I know you you don't like this idea of this all, all religions going to the same direction. But anyway, I I, f- I figured that if you want to really serious about truth, you should pursue it from uh, from four angles. One is philosophy, another is mysticism and meditation, a third is religion, which is based on faith and the testimony of people who claim to provide revelation, and then morality as well. So I, I call those four routes to the absolute. So I believe there's an absolute reality. The whole task is to try to understand that and to live in accordance with it. 
a part of what you said made me think that for you, the value of meditation was increased self-knowledge or self-awareness. But then it also, if I'm understanding you, it sounds like that you do believe that there is an ultimate being that can be accessed through stilling the mind, even though you might have, you may have uh, kind of dabbled in Buddhism and Hinduism and not so much anymore. Now you've, I think you've come around more to being Catholic in a way, but that underlying element hasn't changed. Is that, is that fair? Right. I mean, uh, you know, Aquinas is a deeply mystical guy. His mystical experience near the end of his life put an end to his philosophizing. And he referred to all his writings as straw. So I, I see the discursive activities as uh, leading up to some sort of completion beyond philosophy. I see philosophy as essentially discursive, operating on the plane of reason. And I think philosophy is absolutely essential. So for example, you shouldn't, you shouldn't accept any religion without examining its philosophical credentials. The problem of revelation is a philosophical problem that should be examined philosophically. Philosophy is, a, is something that can never be thrown aside since we are reasoning beings, and you can't suppress that. But we're also, we also pray, you know, like man by nature reasons, as, as Aristotle would say, he said man, man is a rational animal, at least potentially. But we also pray and we also meditate. So if you were to ignore those faculties, then you're ignoring something that's essential to being human. So if you're serious about the truth, you see, if you, if you say, I only want the truth if it's in philosophical form, then you're not really serious about the truth. If you only want the truth packaged discursively, then you're not really inter interested in the truth. Do you think that human nature includes a meditative faculty for directly accessing what you call the absolute? Yeah, I also call it the unseen order. I, I use William James' beautiful phrase, so there's beyond the human horizon, there is an unseen order. Now, how do I know that? Well, I've had mystical experiences. So none of this would make any sense to anybody that hadn't had these experiences. So I've had a range, wide range of mystical, religious, and paranormal experiences. And these, uh, of course, cannot be taken at face value uncritically. They have to be analyzed philosophically although not when you're having the experience, that would be a mistake. But afterwards, you try to analyze them and see which of them are, could, be, could claim to be veridical and which are not. And if you read the mystics, like Teresa of Avila, she'll give criteria for discerning the, the genuine uh, vouchsafings, if you want to call them, of, from this unseen order from the ones that are not genuine. I use the old-fashioned words, vouchsafings. That, uh, that's not a word that's used anymore. Or deliverances. How about the deliverances of, like, if, if, you, if you meditate long and seriously, and it's hard, it's extremely hard. It's, it's, it's actually harder to meditate properly than to construct a rigorous philosophical article that can appear in noose. So I've published in noose and analysis in top journals, so I know how to do that. But to meditate well is even harder because you have to now... You have to stop the discursive intellect, bring it to a kind of a, a cessation. And once you get into a certain meditational state of interior silence or inner quiet, then various things can happen. And uh, they are your evidence base for believing that there really is an unseen order. Otherwise, you're just, you're reasoning to it. You can reason to it and you can reason about it, but you can't really get to it without some kind of direct mode of access.
in meditation, you're trying to, f- to have a, a, a direct intuition and sense, like a, a direct anschauung of, of this supersensible reality. Of course, Kant denies there's any intellectual intuition, but he's very hostile to mysticism himself. But that's a problem with Kant, not with me. There's a question that people ask, and sometimes I think it's just kind of the village atheist being a smarty pants, but sometimes I think it's a it's a truly genuine question. They'll say something like, Bill, what do you mean by God? I mean, do you mean like a white man up in a cloud in the sky who, you know, tells people what to do? What do you mean when you say God? Well, God is the, is the white man with the ultimate white privilege. I mean, clearly, right? <laughs> Now, what, but if they mean it seriously, you have to be—you have to give them a serious answer, because you're a serious guy. Yeah, but I mean, it's also a, political correctness is a very serious aberration that we ought to all combat. You asked me whether God is a is a white man floating on a cloud. There are people, say people particularly with no spiritual background, that have never done any reading, maybe never even known a religious person, and. They might like genuinely just imagine. That's like the only thing they can imagine that you might mean by God, basically like a superhuman. But I don't think that's what you mean at all. I mean that's 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 so puerile as to be ridiculous. I mean, you see, this this is why discussions with atheists are almost always a waste of time because you're dealing with people that are on a very low level of spiritual development. So they think that that's why you know even Russell, who's a brilliant guy. Like when he talks about God, he brings up a celestial teapot. Now, clearly, some piece of space junk in outer space has nothing to do with anything that any theist means by God. I mean, if there's a piece of space junk out there, well, you know, that could be there or not be there, and it would make no difference to the ontological status of anything else, right? Like, add it or subtract it, and you haven't changed the ontological status of the rest of the things. But if if there's no God, then the ontological status of everything other than God changes. In other words, if God exists, let's, think, let's make it more concrete, think of the God of Aquinas, since that's hard, highly articulated and is a part of a huge tradition. That God is the, is the ground or source of the being, the intelligibility, the value or goodness of everything other than God. So if, if there is no God, then the ontological status of, of everything else changes. In other words, nothing is a creature anymore. It's an analytic proposition that a creature is a creature of a creator. So if there's no creator in Aquinas' sense, then there's no, there are no creatures. If our ontological status is createdness, if God exists, then if God doesn't exist, then there's no createdness anymore. So we have a different status. Also, you could say if there's no God, then there's no man either, because if, if you understand man is made in the image and likeness of God, then take out God, then there's no man either. The man just becomes another animal. And God is an ultimate being that doesn't have any source uh, or origin himself, but is the source of the cosmos. and the is source of everything distinct from himself. And is spiritual, not, not material. 
Right. Well, obviously, he can't be a material being. You remember Yuri Gagarin? I think Yuri Gagarin uh, beat Alan Shepard to the punch, didn't he? He was, he was, the first suborbital flight was by Yuri Gagarin. Yeah, the Soviet cosmonaut. Yeah, the cosmonaut. They call him cosmonauts. Okay, so, so this dude, when he's up there, he radios back to you know, ground control in Moscow or wherever the ground control was, and he says, you know, there's no God up here. Now, I've often wondered whether he was saying that just for the benefit of the apparatchiks down in, at ground control, and so he wouldn't get in trouble with the, with the Politburo and the head honchos of the, of the commie state, or whether he really actually expected to see something floating around out there, like uh, maybe a celestial teapot, a, a, an irate lunar unicorn, uh, <laughs> or maybe some guy with a beard or something. A flying spaghetti monster. You know, Ed Abbey has this interesting little uh, two-line thing. He says, you know, does God exist? Is there an angry unicorn on the dark side of the moon? So these questions are somehow equivalent. If To ask whether God exists is like asking whether there's an angry unicorn on the dark side of the moon. And of course, you're going to say no. But that's a total failure to grasp what any theist understands by God. Now, I don't want to deny that there are people who call themselves theists that are superstitious. There are Catholics, for example, who have no idea what Catholic doctrine actually is. So maybe they do think that there is, that God lives in, in outer space. But, so yeah, you'd have to say he's a purely spiritual being. But then the philosophical question is, what exactly does that mean? And the best, the best way I can try to approach it is, well, are you conscious or not? I am conscious. Okay. What, what is this consciousness that you... Uh, have can you see it if you ask yourself well who am i are you your shirt i would say you know as a as a dualist i don't think i am of any observable object i'm closely related to this body so you're no you're clearly no physical thing i mean you're somehow the awareness of of all these physical things not all of them but some of them and you're you're self-conscious you're conscious of being conscious and right here in your own subjectivity, you have a kind of a analogical jumping off place to get some kind of a conception of what a spiritual being would be. So you could say maybe a, a pure spirit would be, would be a, a conscious and self-conscious being that did not have a body. Yeah, you're arguing that we understand that there are thinkers because we are thinkers. But then the concept of God, at least a rough first approximation, is it's a thinker who is not associated with any body or not dependent on any body in the way that we are on our bodies. Right. I mean, what evidence do we have that we can only exist embodied? Well, you know, there's the evidence that as far as I've been conscious, I've always had this, uh, this body. Obviously, I can't work on bodies without having a body, but that's not compelling evidence that I can't exist apart from a body. But even before you go there, I mean, to get an idea of what spirit might be, if you believe in the reality of, of self-awareness. See, self-awareness, even in our embodied state, is not something physical. Now, if some boneheaded materialist tries to say, well, it's one part of the brain monitoring another part of the brain, I'm going to ask him, what do you mean by monitoring there? Is that intentionality? Yeah, I'm not aware that chemistry or physics deals in things like consciousness. Right. If I crack open your skull and I start poking around and investigating, I'm not going to find your uh, fantasy about uh, 
about uh, who was that model you were telling, telling me about. I mean, I'm not going to find a little picture of a naked woman in there. I mean, right, so, but your thoughts have content. They have directedness. So you have the directedness of the thought, and then you have the intentional object, qua intentional object, and those are not in your skull. So right there, materialism just collapses. I mean, a thought can't be identical to a brain state. Now, Bill, one thing I've realized in interacting with you that, you know, a long time ago, you basically stopped practicing Catholicism and really tried out a number of other philosophies and religions. And yet when I talk to you today, you do, you do seem very Catholic in your approach to questions like the existence of God. Are you a practicing Catholic now? Well, no, but you see, the thing is, if you think... If you're a thinking man or person, if you will, then how can you, uh, you know, Catholicism is, is, is filled with extremely specific dogmas. You know, this is, in a sense, weakens it. When they add more dogmas, they weaken it. Like the doctrine of papal infallibility is what got Brentano out of the church. I mean, Brentano was a Catholic priest. And when that dogma was promulgated, probably in, in response to modernist pressures, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And then other dogmas were added later, too. So you've got, for example, let's just take the fundamental dogmas. You have transubstantiation. Now, you're going to ask, well, how is that possible? You have to somehow uh, reconcile your intellectual honesty with your faith. I see religion as more quest than conclusions. So Catholicism has this really detailed dogmatic structure. And if you, you should never confuse any of these dogmas with the reality that they're kind of pointing to. The dogmas are like necessary makeshifts. I borrowed that phrase from F.H. Bradley. They're necessary or they're needed, but they're, they're just makeshifts. If you look at the literature on the Incarnation, and you probably know Christology much better than I do, and all of the different moves that are made to try to make it coherent. And it's all very questionable stuff, right? It would be rational to say that this is just impossible, that, that God can somehow become identical to a particular man. And if you discuss this with intelligent people, you find yourself going around and around, and there's these little semantic shifts, and, you know, there's reduplicative strategies, and you could say, well... Jesus qua man is, um, is passable, but Jesus qua God is impassable. But it doesn't work, really, if you analyze it deeper. See, most people, what they do is they get to a certain level of analysis, ah, it's, but they don't go to the next step. So the, the philosopher goes right, drives right down to the end of the road of dialectic. And what if he gets to a kind of a, a, a contradiction? Then what does he do? I mean, he can go Mysterian, I guess. So, uh, 
I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, you could say that that's what kept me out of the church for a long time. I mean, Trinity, you see, incarnation makes no sense without Trinity, right? Well, it makes sense, but somebody has to be minding the store while God is on earth, right? So the Trinitarian or Binitarian structure is somehow has to be brought in. So Trinity involves logical problems. Incarnation involves logical problems. Resurrection is essential to Christianity. There's the tension in Christianity between the Platonic and the Aristotelian. We talked about that. I mean, what's the soul? Is it the form of the body? That doesn't make any sense to me. But then Platonism doesn't seem to work either. And so you could say, well, <clears throat> so that's what kept me out of it for a long time. So let me paraphrase what I'm hearing you say. What got you out, in a sense, was that as a metaphysician, some of the stuff didn't make sense to you, some of the things that you had to believe. You're not sympathetic to what philosophers of religion call an anti-realist approach, where belief really doesn't enter into it. It's just all purely a matter of practice, because it seems to you that belief clearly does enter into it. Well, that, that view is nonsense. I mean, and I know you'll agree, because, I mean, on my blog once, I, I, I said that uh, something about Dale Tuggy refusing to attend the lectures of that epigon of, uh, of, of Wittgenstein. What's that guy's name? Yeah, when I was in Claremont, I, I never went to hear um, D.Z. Phillips. D.Z. Yeah. Phillips. I had heard the Wittgensteinian shtick, and I was not interested to hear more. Well, you know, Wittgenstein, when you read Wittgenstein, he's a brilliant guy, and he's rich, and you never know quite what he's saying. It's, it's all very exploratory. But then when you get somebody like D.Z. Phillips, the virtue of him is that he extracts the doctrine, he presents it in a really clear way, and then you can see that it can't possibly be right. Let me, let, me, let me explain what, what I mean by that. Now, clearly, a religion is uh, much more than doctrine. That's obvious. But if in the Catholic ceremony near the beginning, you say, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, you are making a statement about the world. You're saying that the heavens and the earth are created by God and that, that it has a certain ontological status that excludes naturalism. Now, that's just one little example, but that's all you need. So clearly, if, if Wittgenstein is saying that religion is just a form of life or just a language game, that's preposterous. It's not even worth two seconds of, of time. Would you agree with that? I do, yes. So that, that's, it's a lunatic position like the position of the eliminative materialist. But on the other hand, if you tried to reduce religion to doctrine— that would be equally preposterous because it obviously involves practice. Now, how exactly they fit together, that's a very difficult problem. So basically, I mean, being Catholic just purely requires more beliefs than you have. But you think that they're onto something and you think a lot of it's right, but they're just making too many specific demands, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. Well, let me say a little more about fideism. There's also Kierkegaardian fideism. I've been reading a lot of him recently, and he too goes off to the, off the deep end. Like Wittgenstein clearly goes off the rails with his almost every aspect of his philosophy, I think. As my teacher J.N. Finley once said, Wittgenstein took every wrong turn it's possible for a philosopher to take. <laughs> Maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but I think basically right. So being a genius is no guarantee that you're going to get it to truth. Like David Lewis would be another classic example of that. But Kierkegaard, like when he says in the concluding on scientific postscript, when he says that truth is subjectivity, that is another ex absolutely extreme doctrine. 
Like he'll say things that Christianity is not a doctrine at all. That's preposterous. Of course, it's a doctrine. It's more than a doctrine. But if you want to say that it's more than a doctrine, don't say it's not a doctrine. It's not just a matter of faith. It's, it's just, you're making claims. And if you're making claims, or if your practice presupposes claims, like let's say you're a Zen Buddhist and you meditate five hours a day, that practice presupposes a certain doctrine, a certain theoretical claim, namely that there's a, a level of reality that you can reach by meditation, that, there's, that, that consciousness has a depth dimension, that you can sink down into that depth dimension. That's a claim. If that's false, then your practice is an absurd practice. Yeah, the doctrine is supposed to tell you why all these you know, expensive practices, expensive in terms of time, money, and effort, is supposed to explain to you or reveal to you why they aren't a waste of time. Because they could be a waste of time on the face of it. Right. I mean, most people would, most average people would say, you know, if they see you sitting on a, a black mat for two or three hours a day, they're going to say, you know, you ought to get a life and go for it. Make something of yourself. Amount to something in the world, you know. What are you, what are you doing? You're just, you're navel gazing. You're engaging in omphiloscopy. I pronounced that right. Omphalos is the belly button. So you're, scope, you're scoping out your navel. In the Desert Fathers, some of the, some of the Desert Fathers recommended that when you meditate, you put your, your chin down on your, on your chest. Then you kind of look in the, in the region of the, of the navel. So you're omphiloscopist. I had no idea that's where the phrase navel gazing came from. You thought it had to do with ships? <laughs> no, I just, I didn't know it had to do with the Desert Fathers. Yeah, I knew what it meant. They recommend you put your, your head like this, put the chin down on the chest. It's a way of focusing. Is this part of your practice, literal navel yeah, gazing? It, it's, not a, it's not a good posture. The best posture is, like, uh, is the, uh, the Burmese posture. Not the lotus, not the half lotus, but where you, you sit on the... I use the regulation Zen mat, and this positions the buttocks in such a way that the knees go down onto the uh, mat, and then the, the legs are, uh, are not twisted up, but... They, they lie flat, so you're, you're in a totally stable position, and you can stay there for an hour or two. So that is actually the best way to, to meditate, but also to pray. You know, the Catholics, you know, with all their kneeling and standing, I mean, that, that's a distraction. You can only kneel for a certain amount of time, although that's, a, I think, a mudra, or the Sanskrit word mudra, which indicates a posture. So certain postures put you in certain frames of mind. So if you kneel, that suggests showing honor or respect to something superior to yourself. There's a place for that too. So maybe the meditation chamber should have a, a kneeler and also the black mat. Also a lectern, like a standing up, where you can stand up and write like Kierkegaard did. So you do all of these activities. You, you read, you write, you pray, and you meditate. And you blog. <laughs> Okay, that that's that that'd make another podcast. Whether blogging is utter vanity that should be uh, avoided entirely, or whether you see blogging involves posting frequently. If you're not posting frequently, you're not blogging. So, the uh, the canonical frequency is once a day. Is this a vain and useless waste of time, or or not? I mean, that that's an open question to me. Bill, I think the readers of Maverick Philosopher do not think it is vain, idle, or a waste of time. It's one of the most read and most interesting blogs on philosophy.
Well, I want to thank all my readers, and one of the great things about blogging is that I've met a lot of like-minded people. I mean, that's one of the main reasons for blogging. It attracts to the blogger like-minded people that you would never find otherwise. So I thank you all for whatever attention you pay to my humble scribblings. Bill, thanks for talking with us. Very welcome. This week's Thinking Music is Readers, Do You Read? by Chris Zabriskie. The link to this song is on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love him in part by thinking hard about him. After all, it was Jesus who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>